I love the fact that this is an episode talking about pure cinema and how indescribable it can be. <laughs> well, it's a bit like... Um, you know the bit where the sun does that indescribable, sublime thing with the water? It, yeah, it's very... Isn't it? <laughs> it's a little bit... It's a little bit half a pound, isn't it? <laughs> it's a little bit... Welcome to One Good Thing, the podcast that runs at 100 frames per second. We're nauseating to look at, but Peter Jackson loves it. I'm R.W. Paul Salt. I'm a close-up of a sad face. <laughs> it's very distressing to hang around with Paul when he is just that. From any angle. Never mind, listeners, calm down. It's just the size of my face. <laughs> it's, no, it's no camera trickery. Your, your face is so big that every shot of you is a close-up. <laughs> Whoa. God, I just undid myself. <laughs> Agent of my own denouement. <laughs> I knew it. First time I met you. <laughs> Oi, yeah, yeah, I like that Paul bloke, but you know what? Agent of his own denouement. <laughs> Total. Continue talking, said the Queen. <laughs> Today, we're biting the big one. Film! Wow. The actual bloody thing. What? I know. <laughs> Jesus, how all-encompassing of film. Film is an illusion created by the rapid succession of images, creating the impression of movement. Is it really? Yeah. It's the thing we never shut yeah, up about. It's pretty good. It's just, hey, look at this picture. Now look at this one. Now yeah. this one. Now this one. Now this one. Now this one. Now this one. <laughs> 24 times a second. Overrated, to be honest. Yeah, really? I mean, if you've ever seen a slideshow in fast motion, you've seen a film. Yeah. And if you've seen one... Well, I mean, if you ever looked at someone running down the road, <laughs> going, yeah. ah, the bus, I'm going to be late. That's a film. <laughs> That's a film. There's very few things in life that aren't actually a film. Yeah. No one knows that. People don't talk about this. <laughs> but they do now. Yeah. Welcome to One Good Thing. Uh, sometimes these images are used to capture performance or action or whatever it is that Nick Cage is doing at any given time. Um, when played in sequence, they can tell stories or explore emotions and ideas or whatever it is that Jack and Jill does. Can you obstinately act like proactively not explore those things? I think that's what <laughs> well, it does. You can. It's an academic field for that. The field of, um, in the same way there's like historiography, which is the study of the people who study history. There's the mm. people who just don't want to study at all. <laughs> they meet up in a lecture hall and just cross their arms and look very pousy. We're the non-historiographists. <laughs> you pretentious <laughs> we're bastards. The, we're the noniographists. Griffs? Yeah, we're griffins. Too. Get out. We're also griffins. <laughs> you have to be a griffin to join. And it's a griff. Yeah, and it's a grift yeah. by the professor. Yeah. Professor not a, <laughs> not a historian. What even are these words? This is hell. (laughs) This is hell. Films are made by big shouty people called directors who go around telling everyone what to do all the time. A bit like that bitch Susan. But unlike Susan, (laughs) they do actually serve a purpose by ensuring that all the different members of the film crew are working towards the same goal. (sighs) That's the bit I laugh at. The bit where you said bitch. (laughs) It's going to be a long episode, I like the naughty words. But look at all the departments that the director has to keep a hold of. There's cinematographers, editors, actors, mm. costume designers, focus pullers, lens shafters, mic bouncers, stop starters, like fondlers, best boys, bad boys, backstreet boys, grip, key grip, grip torn, grippling hook, Liz Hurley, sound maskers, mask sounders. And that's all before breakfast. And he's got to do breakfast as well. <laughs> <laughs> he has to put an apron on after all that, the indignity. <laughs> 
Well, everyone, uh, I'm Christopher Nolan, <laughs> and uh, I've made scrambled eggs again. Chris! Imagine if you were to take the humble raw egg <laughs> and mix it with heat and milk from a cow or goat. Probably goat, because I'm Christopher Nolan. I think. Come on, mate, line's built up. All right. <laughs> you have to say that every time, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> Philistines. <laughs> Imagine if a gene, an unsung hero was serving absolute Philistines. <laughs> you got a little something like this. <laughs> God, looks a lot worse than a guardian. So, Paul, you mizzen scene. Uh, boom. <laughs> uh, TV's better nowadays, isn't it? Film's been left behind. Got more time to tell a story with a good ten-parter. Christopher Nolan just doesn't have the stamina. Stamina, and he's a hipster. Yeah, and that. Yeah, and his eggs are shit. Yeah. <laughs> or you know, th- think of everything that you can achieve in a tight two, three, four, even five-hour movie, and then stretch that over twelve to twenty-four episodes. Yeah. Um, each. Uh, Almost I mean, feature length. All of the Netflix shows are just so much better for being 13 episodes rather than a tight 90. Yeah. Start. Think of all those things you can explore without <laughs> having the time to go, oh no, this is shit too. And then, and then... Think of all the subplots you can have where the main characters just go to New Orleans for a bit. This is definitely a format, I think, where necessity breeds invention. Yeah. And, and yet the thing I love so much about film over any other art form such as literature and um, you know painting and such is just that it, it has this huge ability Hardly a limitation, but in fact, just this extraordinary depth of what can actually be done in terms of its use of composition and um, and editing. No, I, I I agree, and I think the the, the limitations comparing film to TV mm. aren't really limitations. It's just, and also, it's just and, length, really. Com- You're just limited by length. And yeah. Even some directors, you know, yeah. fucking Bellatar will still make a five hour movie if, it feel, if he feels the need to. It's just yeah, yeah. But that's you know, if you feel the need to, you can do that. Yeah. But it's different when you're when you're contracted to do so many episodes. Yeah, I guess it has its own strengths versus um, the other things. Because for theatre, I guess the um, the strength it has is that it is different every night, and a limitation that film would therefore have is that it will always remain the same, even though you yourself mm. will see different things in it and react to it in different ways. The film is set in stone, and that's a strength. And as much as it's eternal, you know, I often think about mm. how many extraordinary performances are done by great actors on the stage for which there is now no record whatsoever. You know, I feel a bit melancholy at that. But those moments were extraordinary, extraordinary in in the time that they existed and the people who got to experience them. It's a bit exclusive, but it it does have a sort of raw magic to it as a result. For sure. I think, I mean, in in comparing film, theatre and literature, I'd be tempted to view them on a a spectrum, with film on one end and literature on the other. and theatre in the middle which is not to say that any one medium is better at dealing with heavy concepts than the other but film is the most visual of the three and literature the least in the sense that you know you have to create your own idea of what this person looks like or this landscape right and you know you could also rearrange that spectrum based on theatre being a live medium as you said yeah and it which also lets it explore things like horror and comedy in an entirely unique way Mm. you know and so on but the visual aspect of film it's a very unique omnipotence an om- omnipresence, I think, that sure. film allows the viewer that, for me, mm. makes its impact indelible. Yeah, it's absolutely the case that cinema does have its own unique ability. And let's let's take a look at the elements that actually make cinema and differentiate it from mm. literature and um, theatre. Okay. So I think that once you boil it all down, the two tools that are unique to cinema or to the moving image is cinematography and editing. Um, and we can discuss sound and music another time. Um, and everything else, apart from those three things, is the subject of the film. Um, you know, the, the performance, 
from you know from theater is you know the subject of the film the um production design also to be found in theater you know the plot a literary you know concept these are all things that you are filming but the actual act of film is cinematography and editing with sound so yeah just starting with uh cinematography coming from greek i think it's uh kinema meaning motion and the sort of graphy is um to write record so the recording of movement the capturing of movement hmm. and it's about the way in which the camera moves the sort of various people including the director set up the mise-en-scene which refers to everything that is within the frame of the picture and the cinematographer then decides how the cam or you know arranges for the director who has decided how the camera is going to move through the environment the kind of light it's going to record the kind of um, shot it's going to have the depth of field which refers to hmm. The distance from the camera in which things will be in focus. So it's kind of the distance between the closest thing that's in focus and the furthest thing that's in focus. And you can have like a shallow focus, which means if a character takes one step back or one step forward, they're going to be out of focus. That's how you get things like the character being super in focus and the background being really blurry. Mm. Or you can have a very deep focus, which is where you have these very startling things, like in Vampire's Kiss. How Nicolas Cage is in focus, and yet also the city out of the therapist's window is in focus. And it's very overwhelming. So those are the decisions of the cinematographer. I think we'll just pick out a few of our favorite kinds of shot, just to talk about what it can do. First kind of shot is an establishing shot. That's that's where you set up where the action is happening. It's often at the beginning of a scene. And a really good example is, say, the first shot of Gotham City from The Dark Knight, where you just see... This huge panoramic Gotham City just does flash onto the screen. Um, And it's just beautiful for setting up atmosphere. It's giving plot, Mm. you know, information to the audience too. Like you show the outside of a diner and now you're going in. That is the function of an establishing shot. But if you're using it right, it can also be breathtaking. I think perspective is a really big one for me. Mm. Um, Thinking about, you know, what I said earlier about the omnipotence and omnipresence. Yeah that a, ca- a camera allows you know what can be achieved with a close-up or an over-the-shoulder shot yeah a recent example would be you were never really here oh yeah holy crap yeah upgrade also did it and it did it <laughs> in a very um one of the most impressive things about that movie actually there was a certain something about the over-the-shoulder shot which felt like uh. it, it felt like it was controlled by an internal <laughs> mastermind microchip did it feel like <laughs> um, Doctor Doom storming down a corridor to make some heads explode. That's the best um, shoulder shot I can think of. It was like that, but even more or less great. <laughs> oh! <laughs> I know. The one that keeps coming back to me in terms of close-ups is I keep thinking about the shot from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, a film that's mm. becoming less recent by the minute, but um, yeah. as are all films, really. Gary Oldman's close-up, when he's talking about his encounter with Carla, a moment in the original TV show, which is actually visited, and you have Patrick Stewart mm. playing Carla, and it's excellent. But um, mm. in the remake, or rather in the Thomas Alfredson adaptation, it's just Gary Oldman's face as he tells this story and his sort of emoting to it. And it's, it's really powerful. There's nothing mm. better than a good close-up. And of course, you can go through history. You've got um, The Passion of Joan of Arc by um, Carl Feodor Drea, which yeah. um, is a story that unfolds purely through the expressions of... Um, the lead actress's face, um, whose name, mm. Renee Jean Falconetti. It's mm. um, entirely told through her expression, which, um, yeah, I mean, that's a very early example of the power of the close-up. That is what mm. film can do, is just, you know, yeah. with a theatre, you're kept at a distance from the performances, but with film, you can just fill the screen, and I think that took a while for actors to adapt to. You had a fair few sort of troubadours 
you mm. know, in their early days who were doing the big acting so that the people in the cheap seats at the back can can hear you. And sometimes yes. you can tell when a theatrical actor has transitioned to film. And it's like, you mm. don't need to shout anymore. It's fine. We can hear you. <laughs> Simon Callow. <laughs> I think what's interesting to me is that the mediums have started to converge mm. a little. You know, like yeah. political parties tend to when you're not going through mm. a period of populism versus socialism. <laughs> yeah. We have we have, like we have more and more cinematic novels that shed literary themes in the interest mm. of style and brevity. We have theatre that provide cinematic experiences through you know, even just the simple use of screens or other yeah. technological innovations. And it's interesting how many directors turn to directing sort of uh, plays and such. You've mm. got um Terry Gilliam, I think, did Faust. Um, okay. Danny Boyle did a, a Frank. A, I think, I think, no. Sam Mendes did a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in the West End, which is interesting. Okay. Wow, that would have been fun. And um, the first person I said, Danny Boyle, he did his Frankenstein with um, mm. Michael Fa- uh, Michael Fa- Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller, the two Sherlock's okay. facing off oh, against interesting. each other. And of course, Martin McDonough sort of started with oh street, god, with, yeah. with with theatre and went into films very successfully and. He still does theatre uh, as well. He um, yeah, sort of still does theatre. Shares his time. I, I went to see Hang, Hangman, actually. Hangman? Oh. I don't know much that is the equivalent in cin- cinema other than the premise that the story we're about to watch is coming out of a novel. Wes yeah. Anderson comes to mind, or maybe or even Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Right. I feel like film has been able to continue to be itself. Film seems to be more robust and able to... Ex- right. exist on the same the same terms so that's yeah that's the close-up the other big thing that the camera can do is move and it can move laterally it can move on a horizontal plane which is panning panning left and right and there was some extraordinary work done with panning um mm-hmm. you think of like the dunkirk scene from uh where's anderson to- <laughs> uh, where's yeah, anderson, uh, Wes anderson, anderson as well his extraordinary panning around as like, well <laughs> the one that really sticks comes to mind is moonrise kingdom and the sort of um yeah circular rotating shot of the um the household at the very beginning yeah it's really great <laughs> back onto christopher nolan i suppose i wasn't talking about christopher nolan i was talking about atonement and the dunkirk, I said dunkirk. yeah dunkirk sequence and atonement when is there oh i panning. heard dunkirk and just haven't actually seen atonement well there's a, a fabulous sort of long take yeah just a, a really great panning shot of the beaches of dunkirk and it's very mm. vivid and kind of um extraordinary uh the other thing it can do is move Ver- uh, not vertically. I guess that is laterally. I don't know what laterally means. Mm. I don't know what any of these words mean, folks. It's a bad <laughs> podcast. Zooming. Going in yes. and out. Moving closer or further away from its subject. God, I'm an idiot. Mm. Obviously, my favorite would be something like the long, slow zoom in on Jack Torrance in The Shining. Just full of menace and terror. And, and, but there are some wonderful moments. Um, one of the ones that comes to mind is this incredibly powerful long zoom in, and obviously an artificial one because it's animation, in Ghost in the Shell at the very end mm. where um, I think the idea is that Kusanagi has just woken back up and is in the body of a um, sort of girl now and mm. perceives her environment. And there's a long, possibly inspired by Blade Runner, zoom in to show herself in a mirror in the far distance. And it's a very interesting shot. Mm. There's one from a small film called Jaws. You might have seen it. Is that the dolly zoom you're thinking of there with the... Um... Yes, quite an intense dolly zoom. The most famous yeah. one, probably. A dolly zoom for people is um, when you simultaneously move the camera closer to the action whilst adjusting the focus to be... Um, you sort of zoom out with the camera whilst moving the camera mm. towards the actor. And the effect mm. is that it looks like the distance kind of falls away. It's very interesting, and it's been used in some mm. very interesting ways by people like Martin Scorsese and Goodfellas, um, yeah. and by Hitchcock and Vertigo. Yeah, M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> All the masters. I think that's about it for cinematography. It's just about the, how the camera captures what is put in front of it. Mm. And the next thing 
that you will experience as part of a film is the editing, which is the way in which those shots are assembled. There's so much that can be done with editing. People often say that the film is saved or made in editing. It's not enough to have Mm. good raw footage. No film got by on raw footage alone. It has to be well edited. Mm. And, you know, some films with terrible footage have been edited into masterpieces. And we've discussed the difference between a a Coen Mm. Brothers directed film and a Coen Brothers written film. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And the thing about the Coen brothers is that they always edit their own films under the uh, pseudonym. Is it Roderick James? Which some directors do do. They do edit their own films and they use a pseudonym. Reason being that um, I think it was Robert Rodriguez who just wanted the credit that was something like shot, cut, and Mm. something else, and scored by Robert Rodriguez. But the way that the unions in America work, the reason that credits come in the order that they do is it needs to be director, screenwriter, producer, editor. And so often directors who have edited their their um their work but haven't done any of those intermediary things, they don't want their name just coming up over and over again, and so they come up with a different name. I think um yeah. what's his name? The guy who pumps out two a year. Soderbergh, Steven Soderbergh, he does oh, yeah. he does the same thing, I believe. I, I feel like for me anyway, as uh, at least more of a layman than you are, good editing is oh. something that I notice less if it's yeah. done well. It's like a special effect. Yeah. Bit of an unsung hero. Sorry, Roderick James, it was called. Uh, oh, okay. is uh, the name of the Coen Brothers editor. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just saw that briefly on the Coen Brothers page. It said children. It said Joel 1, Ethan 2. And it's like a scoreboard. <laughs> <laughs> Bad luck, Hurry Joel. Hurry up, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> the most simple kind of edit is just a simple cut, which is that mm. you are seeing one thing, cut to another thing. And that can be in between scenes, but also incidentally. So if you're watching a conversation yeah. and one person turns left and says something and the other person is turning right, we cut to someone facing right saying another thing we Mm. understand that to be that these two people are having a conversation actually that's an aspect of this i i meant to talk about and forgot to um include why do we understand films so instinctively why don't kids need to be taught how to watch films like if i show a character turn to their left and look downwards and then show Mm. something on the floor why do kids just know that that means that character has just looked at that thing on the floor because it's not how we experience real life experience real life is just one long stream true but they are just as each character has perspective the camera also has perspective and i think that kind of thing is instilled in us on a daily minutely secondly basis the way we see and understand life it's yeah. just a different way of presenting it i think it's just, it's yeah. very it's very intuitive well i i heard one interesting theory i can't remember who to attribute it to now but it's the idea that films work the way that they do because it's how we dream we dream in that okay. way of cutting and sort of um, moving around. And that's why that's why we don't need to be taught it, is it's just instinctive to us from that. Which is an okay. interesting idea. It's certainly true that life has no editing. It has composition. You can be close to a thing, far away to, from a thing. And in many ways, mm. cinematography is just trying to match your perspective on mm. real life or challenge it in some way. Editing is something entirely unique. I guess memory has editing. Yeah, I guess so. You edit sort of incidentally and yeah. accidentally. Yeah, I think it's all, it's all fairly one and the same with human experience. I think it's easier to intuit than, well, like you said, learning to read or something yeah. like that. Absolutely. Um, there's also a hard cut or a smash cut. It's a very abrupt sort of movement from one scene to the next or from one shot to another. And the one that yeah. always springs to mind for me is, is in Pulp Fiction, where um, Christopher, having been in a locked-in shot for the last few minutes with Christopher Walken telling this story of his grandfather's watch. Um, A little hand comes up, grabs the watch out of Christopher Walken's hand. You hear a bell um, and you cut to Butch waking up in his dressing room. Little man, 
I gave the watch to you. <gasps> and it's a lovely okay. sort of abrupt ending. A dream is a common thing to do with a smash, um, a smash cut or a hard cut. Yes, the one, the one that I think of is the Dark Knight. Actually, when Bruce Wayne and Alfred are discussing yeah. the Diamond Thief, the Diamond Thief. Yeah, in the uh, in the jungle, and uh, he asks, <laughs> "How did you catch the thief?" And he just turns and goes, "We burned the forest down." And then it just yeah. cuts to um, Harvey waking up, Harvey waking up, scarred and about to begin his rampage. And it's yeah. such a fucking powerful <laughs> moment. That bandit in the forest in Burma. Did you catch him? Yes. How? We burned the forest down. It really is. There's a few in the Dark Knight, actually. I really love the cut after the Joker's homemade video. I'm a man of my word. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Um, Mm. And then speaking... Well, those cuts can be motivated by what's happening on screen, such as the case of a match cut. Mm. A match cut is where what you're cutting from and to in some way matches what has happened. And it can be very light. It can be like a synchronized noise. I mean... There's a great video out there by, I think it's Channel Chriswell. Um, or it might have been the Royal Ocean Film Society. Go find out, viewers. I'm not looking it up. <laughs> um, about David Lean's, <laughs> David Lean's scene transitions and the way he often uses a sound. <laughs> to motivate it, like the sound of a glass clinking will be matched to the sound of a photo being taken. Yes. And that's how he gets from one scene to the next. And his most famous is also his most his most breathtaking and possibly one of the best cuts in cinematic history. And that's um, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, the very beginning, when um, mm. Lawrence um, blows out a match, and we use it to yes. hard cut to the sheer size of the um, of the desert of Arabia. Um, it's a wonderful cut, and it's it, it works so well because it's ever so slightly off. Yeah, the breathing out sound, I think trails the cut a little bit um it just creates a marvelous sense of one moment leading into the next it's it's very fluid it's beautiful i think edgar wright is a big proponent yeah. of that kind of thing and it's, oh, it's just throughout and it's the kind of the kind of thing in his movies that just picture up by the lapels and just drags you along with it it can be quite <laughs> disorienting at times i think when edgar wright uses it yeah um entirely entirely intentionally yeah but it's it's clinical it is yeah it's excellent and there's also the match transition which I love, and um, Park Chan-wook is the master at this, and the best instance I can think of is from Stoker, where um, mm. Mia Wasichowska's character is brushing uh, Nicole Kidman's hair, and as we pan down the hair, the hair gradually turns into long grass, and it's a flashback mm. sequence to um, Mia out hunting with her father, and that's such a good shot. It really is a beautiful transition because it's so seamless the way the hair... There's no one moment where it's happened. It's really effortless. You have L or J cuts. Now, this refers to the idea, as as I said with David Lean, the idea that the audio cut trails or leads the visual cut. I forget which way is which. I think um, if it's it's called what it is because of how it looks on a timeline. If you can imagine yes. the picture on top and the audio underneath, if the audio cuts first, that's a J cut, because you can sit, sort of imagine yeah. a J. And if the yeah. um, audio sort of trails the cut, the visual cut, then that's an L. Mm. Um, and the best J cut I can think of is No Country for Old Men. And it's after Anton Chigurh has had his confrontation with uh, Kelly McDonald's character. And mm. we don't know what's going to happen, but suddenly, before we cut, we hear the sound of the sprinklers outside, and then we're outside with them. Well, I got here the same way the coin did. And it's just this yeah. horrible sense that what has happened is inevitable. 
it's already happened. The conversation's over already, mm. even though we're still here for a bit. And we're just being lulled into whatever it is that comes next. That's sim- very similar to the way a dream a dream works. Yeah. I think. With sounds from sounds from the waking worlds mm. imposing themselves just before you wake up. Yeah. Um, definitely. Yeah, it's an interesting, pretty salient uh, comparison drawn by mm. whoever it was that you said. Well done. <laughs> I didn't remember who it's, who said it, damn it. I know Mark Kermo told us, but I'm sure he was quoting someone. Because that on original hack. Peter Travers. Yeah, probably. Mark Cousins. Yeah. Um, the last thing to talk about really is the fade in and fade out a wonderful technique the fade in the most immediate thing that comes to mind is the beginning of Godfather Part 2 that slow fade on Michael just looking full of angst and power and the fade out at the end with him on the bench Mm. it's pretty powerful but um, my favourite is probably Old Boy the very end when he is deciding whether to laugh or weep Mm. I mean Gaspar Noe is is, I'd call it a strobe out it's more of a (laughs) It's more of a seizure out at the end of Irre- Irreversible as the camera pans and spirals as it pans away from Monica Bellucci at the beginning right. chronologically of the movie. Right. Every- everything fine. And is it Beethoven's fifth that's playing? That's seventh, second movement. Okay, sorry, seventh. It's, it starts to fade to white, but it's strobing at the, the same time. And similar idea, but with a bit of a Gaspar Noe uh, <laughs> a bit of twist. A ga- bit of a Gaspar twist. That's what I like to bring to films. What's happening? I feel sick. <laughs> it's a Gaspar twist. <laughs> So, Ugh. with those things in mind, I think it's time for a top 10 list. And after mm. we are denumbed for a while about making what we just did the top 10 list, and also mm. top 10 scenes, I think we discussed for a bit. Yeah. We settled instead on the idea of pure cinema. What's that, I hear you punch? Well, <laughs> filmtheory.org describes film, um, pure cinema fussly. Cinema pure is a means of cinematic variation that upholds and promotes the standings, notions of cinematic embellishments which cradles the orbits considering the virtuous first principles. The principles are the aspects of mundane actions, a graphic ocular framework with the inclusion of upbeat cadence. Uh, these three are vital attributes as the pure cinema's main focal point of concentration and consideration. Dis fucking scuss. It's good, isn't it? <laughs> I agree. <laughs> if this were a video format, I'd be us waving. <laughs> I think that was very clumsily translated out of French. I hope it was. Sweet Christ. Andrew Dilks at What Culture, which is more my level, <laughs> Dilks. says, <laughs> Dilks. Twat. Thanks for this definition. Uh, while the definition has been debated, most agree that pure cinema represents the conscious rejection of other artistic mediums in filmmaking. Specifically, the narrative influence of literature and the theatrical influence on acting and plot structure, which most films tend to emulate. Pure film tells its story, or more relevantly explores its themes, since stories are inherently literary, not through dialogue and exposition, but through the elemental combination of sound and imagery. Composition and editing techniques which are exclusively cinematic come to the fore, allowing ambitious ideas to be explored in unique ways. What came to Mm. mind when you sort of heard that definition? I found it to be quite a revelation. It made me realise that I'd done the list correctly. (laughs) So that's pretty good. Um, A day's work, done. That's very nicely described there by by master dilks <laughs> yeah i really liked it i really enjoyed the idea that this is what cinema is when you strip mm. away everything else it's these things we are looking at these are our 10 favorite films that do without the accoutrement of other forms as far as is possible mm. it's, it's mm. difficult to find films that are well it's not difficult but we wanted to portray a range here 
because it's not just films that don't have stories you know because you yes. can make that list that list of abstract films these films pure cinema can have stories it's just it's going to be stories that are told through visual medium not through exposition you know characters saying things to each other and i'm interested in finding films that could not be sort of readily explored in other mediums and i feel like we say that mm. about novels we say of novels oh this is unfilmable or you know mm. video games like this this narrative couldn't have been any, in anything else other than an interactive medium but rarely are examples of films that are inherently cinematic described you know if you can novelize wild wild west then mm. surely anything is possible <laughs> um but these are also this is a list in chronological order oh yes that's very uh, as well we'll say that yeah try and get me to rank these films i probably could but <laughs> well yeah at a push but to be clear we're yeah. not going to just name films that we like a lot nor films that make yeah. very prevera use of cinematic technique indeed there are many yes. films that kind of pioneered these techniques like renoir's the rules of the game or Wells, Citizen Kane, that could probably mm. not count as pure cinema due to the amount of expositional dialogue. Um, yes. So, yeah. And also, the other thing to say is that um, we're not saying that this is the only way to do film, or the best way to do film. Um, a lot of the films in my top ten list would probably struggle to be described as pure cinema. And mm. creating this list is not some attempt to lay out a manifesto, you know, this is what films should be, you know, a Dogma 95 sort of way. Um, mm. Cinema is too broad and powerful to you know to be prescribed in that way yes yeah but as it is a concept heavy episode about pure film <laughs> we shall crack on one last thing before we start our lists i d in doing this i found a lot of people refer to hitchcock uh who actually did speak extensively about storytelling through visuals and um but i couldn't include any of his films because he's always breaking this rule think of the long explanation at the end of psych at the end of psycho of uh norman's mm. relationship to his mother where it fully gets laid out exactly what was going on the whole film in a long... It's very red state, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. In, like an interrog in a John Goodman-style interrogation. Or Jimmy Stewart <laughs> explaining the deception at the end of Vertigo to the actual deceiver. Mm. You're a good little swimmer, weren't you? You're a good little swimmer! <laughs> <laughs> and everyone, everyone likes to point to the beginning of Rear Window, where props... You know, the camera moves over a series of props that tell you everything you need to know about Jimmy Stewart. Great. Except that it is immediately followed by a phone call in which he explains it all again in words. So, mm. no Hitchcock, that hack. Yeah. In the bin with Nolan. <laughs> in his eggy bin. In his eggy bin. What? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a bit rough. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. I will say it's a shame not to have any silent films on my list. Um, or mm. like silent films from early cinema, but um, none of them immediately sprang to mind, and I didn't have a time. I didn't have time to go back and revisit which ones are truly driven by visual storytelling, mm. and not by performance, a la Chaplin, or caption cards, a la Abel Gantz or Fritz Lang. I think it probably mm. would have been Murnau if anyone else, but um, I haven't seen Sunrise, which is his masterpiece apparently, and there wasn't time to do so. So mm. no, and I and I and I, and I refuse to tell you. <laughs> It's the only film I've seen. <laughs> so instead, let's start in the 1960s with La Ventura, directed by Michelangelo Antonioni. Gesuno. Oh! Senti l'eco. Come mai è vuoto? A group of very rich friends take a trip to an island where one of the young women in the party disappears. The character who seems to be the main character until that point. Her lover and best friend begin searching for her and end up forming a conciliatory relationship with each other. Uh, but it transpires that their new relationship may be as insincere as their attempts to find their missing friend. 
So it's not spoiling anything to say that their friend is never found and her disappearance mm. is never explained. I mean, there's a bit with a falling rock that implies how easy it is to fall off this island. And there's a bit earlier where someone mentions sharks. So maybe you could use your imagination there, but it's not important. No. Um, it's not what the film is about. Antonioni is exclusively interested in the alienating effect of modernity on individuals and the collapse in communication and meaning between people. I had to have something Italian on this list because they've made such tremendous contributions to cinema and could have gone for a neorealist like uh, Visconti or Rossellini. Mm. But realism was never really my thing. Neorealism was very much like Dogma 95. It was all yeah. about non-professional actors, real situations, working class stories. I prefer fantasy is <laughs> the thing. Mm. So I just know Mike Lee on my top 10 list. And in the 60s, yeah. nobody did fantasy better than the Italians, apart from the Swedes and the French, which we'll talk about later. I prefer Antonioni to Fellini, who's eight and a half. Might have been a more natural fit here. But it's Antonioni's invention of modern cinematic conventions that excite me a bit more than Fellini's disregard of them. Antonioni has amazing blocking. He uses quadrants and vertical lines, and he splits the frame to sort of trap his characters and fully conveying the desolation of their experience. He works beautifully in colour, Laventura is black and white, and it's just a beautiful story about these two characters half-heartedly trying to do things, like find their friend or explore each other. And my favourite scene, the most cinematic scene for me, is the scene where they find an abandoned town, a town that looks like it was never actually lived in. It was built, it's very modern, it's very new, and it's just completely empty and eerie, like a ghost town. And they just wander around it for a while, and then they leave. And there's a particularly eerie shot as they're leaving, in which we have a lockdown view of their car at the end of an alley. They get into the car and drive off, and after they've driven off, the camera starts to move towards where they were, like a suddenly present spectator following them to wherever it is they're going, but very slowly. It's a very eerie shot, and it's just the idea that this place does contain sort of ghosts, ghosts of purpose, ghosts of lives mm. that might have been lived in this place, you know, which have now been thoroughly left behind. Well, my number 10 is 2001 A Space Odyssey Ooh. by Stanford Kubrick. <laughs> Stanford? Kubrick. I'm for your dinner. Sorry, Kubrick. Kubrick. Got to get that U sound in. I'm not <laughs> American, for God's sake. <laughs> Um, it needs no introduction, really, um, but once a monolith is discovered that affects human evolution, an expedition heads to Jupiter on a ship with a sentient computer. How? Uh, it's famous for exp exploring existentialism, technology and AI, and of course evolution. It's rightly considered one of the greatest films of all time. I've written times. <laughs> uh, of all times. <laughs> Why pure cinema? Because it explores silence and the void. Uh, a shot of the ship docking isn't cut for dramatic effect, but to give us a full sense of our insignificance and, and futility. Space yawns into the docking bay, framed like a monolith itself, and a spaceship the size of a grain of rice passes through. Mm. A man with very few distinguishing features runs the same small lap over and over again, yeah. infinitesimal in space, in, in, in this futile pursuit of fitness. <laughs> and that's not even to speak of the outrageous, bombastic renaissance scene at the end of the movie. Mm. There's just so much to glean from any one shot when on the surface they could be about nothing at all. And in a sense, they are. For me, the best example of pure cinema here, I mean, it's, it has to be the renaissance slash Stargate mm. slash evolution yeah. scene. Um, <laughs> for an ending to a movie, it's suitably heavy in moments. Uh, light on exposition completely absent of exposition rather there's more happening in these final moments than we ourselves would see in a lifetime but all it needs is this sequence of scenes and thus spake Zarathustra for you the viewer to be confronted with the full force <laughs> of the endless potential of the world and space it, it's an utterly profound 
feeling watching this movie and it does it does so largely without the fripperies of, of dialogue on from antonioni for me is onto the french new wave a band of form, former uh, a band of former film critics who decided to practice <laughs> what they preached by reinventing film um i can't remember who it was who said the only good way to critique a film is to make your own but um i think that's sort of the advice that they took to heart at um mm. cahier de cinema and we're gonna have a goddard because you know Goddard. Hmm. So Goddard's early black and white work is often discussed for their confrontational bravura, um, especially yeah. Breathless and Band of Par. But it's this vividly coloured 1965 work that really captured my imagination. Pierre Lafoe. Moi j'ai une toute petite ligne de chance. Moi j'ai une toute petite ligne de chance. Ma ligne de chance, ma ligne de chance. Dis-moi chérie, qu'est-ce que t'en penses? Oh. Ce que j'en pense, quelle importance. C'est fou ce que j'aime, ta ligne de hanche. Ta ligne de hanche. And I could have had Le Mépris, uh, The Contempt, um, which was another option, but that one is more dialogue-driven. Even though I do enjoy the way that Goddard creates a cinematic landscape out of the contours of Brigitte Bardot's body. It's very much appreciated. Mm. But uh, there's also Weekend, of course, from 1968, but there's a cynicism that's sinking into the things by that point that i'm not quite on board with just a lot of kind of aggressive po- um what do you call it anarchist politics that is mm. interesting and it's a very interesting film but um there's a confrontationalness to uh weekend which is absent from pierre lafoe in pierre lafoe he is at his most playful whilst also being still very provocative it's about a man who is sick of his boring bourgeois existence and so he runs away with a young woman to indulge in a crime spree across france where they just go around <laughs> beating people up and taking their shit most of the film is just random encounters with people whom they rob or kill and it's the couple are is jean paul belmondo the goddard sort of mainstay at his most charismatic he's amazing and he's unusually self-deprecating in this one playing the titular fool which makes me just love him even more. Anna Karina is amazing as the Bonnie Parker figure who sort of goads and chastises Belmondo for not being able to experience life authentically and mm. wrapping himself in popular culture. The two cannot communicate, not popular culture, sorry, in fine art and such. Um, the two cannot communicate and any dialogue in the films is not in service of furthering the plot, but rather in furthering the idea that they can't talk to each other. So the cinematic aspect of this comes from the mesmerizing use of color, the disorientating yet magnetic style of editing, which can be often completely unmotivated or motivated by the need to seem unmotivated and just generally disregarding cinematic convention which includes just venturing into fantasy or absurdity as he sees fit and its most cinematic moment could be them just deciding to drive into a river apropos of nothing (laughs) or the iconic car kiss that can used as its uh, sort of main image this year and it's just them Mm. driving madcap around in a couple of cars that they've i think it's just after they've had a big heist um, and they're just driving the getaway cars around in a circle and they lean out of their cars to kiss each other as they pass. Or my, Great. I think my favorite moment though is just where it becomes a musical for one scene as non-diegetic music just fades in and the two main characters just start singing to it. <laughs> very influential, very weird, very funny. Really playful. Yeah. My number nine is 13, nice. Sametti. Levez-vous A 2005 film directed by Gela Bablwani, 
apologies for the pronunciation. Uh, Stop writing that letter white, to us. We're sorry. Black and white, very minimalist uh, film following Sebastian, who's a Georgian immigrant repairing a house in France when he hears of a mysterious job that pays very well indeed. Yeah. Uh, it turns out it's a sort of Russian roulette where a group of people are given guns with one bullet and put in a circle with a gun against their heads and their gun against someone else's. It is visceral stuff because is this is the, the crux of the film. It's where we spend the majority of the time in this, in this dank room. Several poor men pointing guns at each other whilst rich Frenchmen place bets on them. These sequences hinge on silence, a close-up and then a click or a bang. Half the room is dead. Yeah. Is the, is the protagonist going to survive uh, this particular round? There is dialogue. It's the sort of directing Sebastian to this game. But once we get to the game, it is pure cinema. Mm. The, the camera and sound work tell us of the tension. If we needed informing of such a thing, it's directed in such a way that all that matters in that moment is the gun. When they are ordered to load their guns and spin the chambers, the guns sound heavier against the silence. We have a static shot of 15 or so people holding their gun with one bullet in the in the air, spinning the chamber over and over again. The contestants are then told to watch the light bulb in the centre of this dank, dingy room, because when it comes on, that's when they have to pull the trigger. And as they're spinning the chambers and watching the light bulb, we just go from face to face to face, and some people are quietly praying some people are staring steely-eyed ahead some people are freaking out just before the trigger is pulled and uh when they're watching the ball we watch with them yeah it is utterly visceral yeah okay to bergman now my favorite bergman films are wild strawberries and the seventh seal but i've elected to go Mm. with persona for pure cinema um, which is oh Bergman oh Bird- said Birdman Birdman <laughs> I'm Tony Birdman I'm here to direct your feature film more tits oh Birdman I hate you no I mean tits as in I'm a Birdman I want you know <laughs> blue tits wood tits stop saying tits no don't stop never stop <laughs> you can't stop me nothing can stop and it's me it's pure cinema discussion <laughs> Persona is perhaps the conventional choice, but undoubtedly the film of his that I have seen thus far that is most willing to use abstract imagery to explore the turmoil of its characters. Um, mm. I could have also gone with Roman Polanski's Repulsion here in terms of a character sort of trapped at the sort of gun barrel end of a cinema lens, but um, uh, there's a purity to pers- uh, Persona that I enjoy. Um, it's about an actress who has stopped speaking. Uh, to recover, she retires, she retires to a rem- remote house uh, with a nurse where they both become unraveled and the lines begin to blur um, between their mm. identities and they start to think that they are each other. Most of the film is just two characters alone in a house, trapped by shadows and intense close-ups that prevent movement. Um, it's one of the most studied films ever made, precisely because there are so many interpretations to be made of the film's bizarre narrative, but it's pure cinema because it's an exploration of confusion and melancholia and anger and possessiveness, solely explored through Bergman's experimental and daring cinematography and i hate to be <laughs> kind of lazy with this but i think the best scene is the film's first and it's the um we have a weird fading in whining sound as a projector begins to sh- uh, s- start up and as it snaps onto into action we have a few shots uh jarring shots and then a mm. child wakes up on a mortician's table he turns and beholds a giant white screen with a woman's face projected onto it he touches it and after a while, the fast-paced, abstract, completely disorientating but exhilarating opening credits begin. Yeah, it's just an incredible opening to a film. It's very experimental and just very powerful. 
And it just sort of be- mm. belays the idea that this is a momentous thing that we're about to start watching. Great. Well, it didn't really didn't take me very long to get into the 21st century, but uh, here we are with uh, Wally, 2008. Yay, Wally. Directed by Walt Disney. <laughs> Wally. <laughs> Now, for an example of pure animated cinema, I was contemplating The Illusionist and Uh, also Belleville Rendezvous, Uh. um, which is a fantastic French movie about capturing cyclists off off of the Tour de France to run a sort of (laughs) show. Uh. And it's it's completely free of dialogue, and I just recommend everybody go and watch it. Mm. But uh, for now, Wally. Uh, it's set in a distant future when the Earth has become uninhabitable and humans have left the planet until it can be terraformed. It's pure cinema because the scene is set through the eyes of this beautiful little trash compactor robot and oh. its interactions with <laughs> it's the world. Beautiful little trash um, bot. And <laughs> beautiful trash face. <laughs> and then... Much of the remaining narrative is told through basic emotional reactions mm. between Wally and Eva. It's reminiscent of silent movies in that respect. I yeah. think. In fact, there is there is one moment when he's watching, um, if not silent silent cinema, but old sort of musical mm. Broadway style movies um, from the olden days. Um, oh, those I guess olden it's, days. You know, it conveys everything with just one word of dialogue which is wally over and over again <laughs> we get to know the person personality of this little guy we get to see everything about the world just in the way that he r- interacts with it it's just him exploring the world it gets everything across that it needs to and yeah not a single line of dialogue is needed yeah and him and his little cubby with all the possessions that he has deemed yeah. important enough to pick out of the trash a beautiful yeah. film. Right, into the 70s for me. And this is the big one. This is probably the one I would... If we were ranking these by purely cinematic qualities, this one may have been number one. Um, we have Andrei Tarkovsky, the sculptor mm. of time. Yeah, perhaps the definitive... Eater of sharks. <laughs> Eater of sharks, bender of light. He is perhaps the sort of key component, uh, proponent of um, pure cinema. And my favourite of his films is Andrei Rublev. Hmm. Um, but the purest cinema he ever made was either Nostalgia or the one I've selected here, Mirror. Mm. He filmed his dreams and his life. That's all it is, really. It's scenes from his childhood. It's moments from his parents' life. And it's uh, specifically his mother, who forms a sort of focal figure of the film. And it's just moments, possibly imagined, possibly embellished. Just Mm. scenes from his mind. And there's something almost frightening about how Titanic Mirror is. It's a colossal work of breathtaking imagery. Its aesthetic is uncanny, in a strange way, it's how dreams look and feel. Mm. The languid movement of Tarkovsky's camera combined with the meticulous perfection of his mise-en-scene creates an atmosphere of importance to everything, even the scenes of domesticity and um, simple childhood confusion. Every frame is not only beautifully is not only beautiful but profound. It's about the mysterious quality of the wind, or how light can sometimes be liquid, and the otherworldly quality of water. Uh, the poetry of the Russian language is a dominant feature throughout, almost like a lyrical soundtrack. 
it's hard for me to point to any individual thing that the film actually means and say this is what it's all about. Its sheer beauty actually puts me off trying to interpret it. <laughs> I'm happy to just leave it yeah. as an extraordinary place that I'm able to go and visit when I feel I need to reconnect with the medium of film and what it can be. I, I was just going to say, I, I associate watching that movie with a gentle euphoria that, mm. that I experienced pretty much throughout. I, I, was, I was very tired, but I think there's just an mm. affection in there and there's a sort of a, a, a wistfulness as, yeah. as you're just sort of going from dream to dream. Yeah, a really special film. It really is. And I think for me, the most purely cinematic moment is when early on, uh, it, it implied that it's the boy dreaming. So perhaps it's Tarkovsky dreaming of a woman washing her hair in a house that is crumbling to pieces um, amidst a heavy rain. There's just water pouring from the ceiling. And I think the shot of the mother washing her hair is shot in reverse. And so her movements are very eerie and strange and it's just a really breathtaking image my next one takes us to the distant past of 2009 uh, probably the closest <laughs> anyone for me has come to kubrick and a space odyssey it's gaspar mm. noe's daily life <laughs> it's his trip to the uh, shops on tuesday <laughs> <laughs> which someone else saw and uh, projected to the rest of us <laughs> such as his power all praise noe enter the void <laughs> Oscar, ne'er do well, has gone down in the Tokyo drugs bus and soul drifts around Tokyo after his sister and friends as they grieve and learn to move on. Eventually, so must he to the tune of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. <laughs> now, considering two thirds of this film is spent hovering over Tokyo as Oscar observes his sister and so on, but without being able to interact with them, except maybe through f the flickering of lights, interspersed by the same few memories of him and his sister that he mm. can't help but return to, he's just drawn to them as a soul, which usually end in the horrendous car crash that yeah. killed their parents it's really hard to pick a particular part of this movie that is the most pure cinema we're watching a soul play out the same cycle again and again until the natural order of things pulls it in to, um, and orders it to be reborn the, exper the experience is pure light and sound often incomprehensible to us as living beings a testament to its pure credibility I think is uh, the difference watching this in a cinema can make I, I saw it twice before going to see it before we went to see it in the cinema we've actually yeah. talked about this before and the two mm. people that we went with adored it and it's yeah. difficult not to because it fill it fills the space it just becomes it becomes everything in that space at that moment so i mean to, to pick a, a pure moment the final two hours who's you know i i really struggle to think of something specific but the ending very similar sort of idea to a space odyssey when you go away when you think about it it's it's perhaps very on the nose and very obvious but it's incredibly yeah. overwhelming and it's such a lofty thing to to convey assuming that there's two or three people who still haven't seen um gaspar noe's three-hour masterpiece about a soul drifting around tokyo <laughs> i won't spoil the ending even though i've alluded to it but yeah pure cinema baby absolutely at the same time as that miro was being made in a um in the decadent west a strange young man was doing mm. milk rounds to finish his first feature film um <laughs> david lynch's Eraserhead is perhaps his most <laughs> pure cinematic statement um it contains yeah. his aesthetics so precisely and explores his concerns so fully that his subsequent films feel almost like variations on these themes. It's just a perverse parody of wholesome American life. 
and a nightmare of rumination on parenthood and industrialized world. Um, it's about a guy, Jack Nance. Um, I can't remember the character he plays. Henry, Henry, that's it. Um, he is a, some sort of worker, but he's currently on some sort of leave. And he is visited by an old girlfriend who tells him to come to dinner. A very bizarre dinner involving tiny chickens. Uh, little damn things. Um, where he is told that he is the father of a baby. It's premature, but they're pretty sure it's a baby. Um, and it's just mm. it's this horrific experience of him trying to look after this terrifying baby that Lynch still won't say how he made it. His Lynch's aesthetic is very dirty, but it's gorgeous. It's the aesthetic of a mm-hmm. dilapidated warehouse. It's suffocating, but profoundly beautiful as well. It's my experience of warehouses. There's a, ter- a there's a terrifying but profound universe ruled by a metallic steam-driven god. And in fact, that's my favorite part of the movie is near the beginning mm-hmm. where we get to see the man inside of the bu- in the man inside of the planet, this disfigured, horrible figure leaning over these controls. Uh, which and these big yeah. clunking levers that he sort of pulls in order to contrive the the lives of men. So many wonderful <laughs> sentences you're saying. <laughs> Eraserhead is just a visceral kind of experience. It's like a movie mm. that you smell. You know, mm. you've got to go see it. It's. Just... I think I could put some of those lines to a sort of a mellow, <laughs> an ambient drum beat, <laughs> and a nice bit of synth. Lynch, I think we'd get somewhere. Lynch would actually no. He, Lynch would probably put it to some sort of incredibly high energy pop number from the 1960s. Yeah. Manos style. Vocoded throat singing. <laughs> I show him. Show yeah. everyone. <laughs> Take that, Nolan. What? <laughs> Cut to him. Just eating a sandwich. <laughs> hey! <laughs> All right, David Lynch. Shut up, Nolan. Oh. <laughs> a hand reaches into his scene to slap him on the back of the head. <laughs> Ow! Not again, Lynch. Um, my next two films are from 2011. So uh, let's go in alphabetical order. Do it. The Artist. Ah. Yeah. The Aardvark. It's a uh, film... <laughs> This is a film about a silent movie star failing to adapt to the talkies. It's made in the style of black and white silent movies. It's very meta in that way. It didn't deserve the Oscar bullshit. <laughs> it's, it, it forces itself to have these limitations. But as we know by now, it's the limitations that often make it. Just as movies from the silent era had to rely on other ways of communicating ideas, dialogue, etc, etc. Homage or not, copy or not, it lent heavily on the incredible physicality of the performers, but also the leanness of the film, its camera work, its music. It's especially pitch perfect, not pitch perfect, especially absolutely clinical shots. Especially pitch perfect Uh, too. Especially pitch perfect too, uh, (laughs) which Anna Kendrick was amazing in. And, um, (laughs) you know, I really think it just heralds really good things for her. And... Even limited itself to this, this sort of twee sense of humour that came from this time when you couldn't overtly say or do certain things you know, relating to communists <laughs> or whatever. And, and, I th- and I think with the artist, what you see with all these limitations is a thrilling, endearingly hilarious and much like silent movies of old, a spectacle of a film, you know, from, from the bottoms of somebody's shoe design right to the coif in our character's hair. It's a silent movie. Mm. It's... It has, to, it has to rely on the the on elements of pure cinema. Good example of this would be the dream that Jean Dujardin has 
um, mm. when he's becoming aware of and dealing with his silence, this inability yeah. to speak. It's this beautiful mix of dream mechanics and the constraints of the genre. Um, it's amusing and suffocating. And it manages to get the message across mm. as well as being very playfully meta. Is that the one where he discovers diegetic sound? Like when he puts yes. something down? Yeah, that is great. Yeah. Right, on to the 80s, the sleazy 80s. <laughs> wow, how go appropriate. On. Go on. Yes, 1982. <laughs> And it's the only film on the list that could reasonably be described as a documentary. Yeah. So in that sense, it edged out Arcadia, which is a film that achieves something similar in terms of using montage to depict journey away from nature. But I'm sticking to Godfrey Reggio's Koa Niskatsi. Hmm. Koa Niskatsi. A series of images depicting our world gradually moving away from sublime nature into man-made wonders and horrors. <gasps> Ooh, Shit. scary building. Uh, Philip Glass's score makes the film for me. It's an ambitious, innovative, and hugely impressive score that succeeds in being exhilarating or exquisitely peaceful as needed. soundtracks of all time and it is essential to the understanding of the imagery in the same way that the imagery is kind of essential to the understanding of the music it's a beautiful harmony um, that makes the film ironically seeing as the title means life out of balance but i think for me that's kind of part of the contradiction of the film and as much as reggio is kind of depicting all of this to say look at it how horrible it is but it can't help but demonstrate the extraordinary beauty of it you know of the lifestyle he wishes to decry. There is something extraordinary about watching machines putting cars together, or um, seeing tens of thousands of people ascending a subway in fast motion. You know, it might be scary from a collectivism versus individualism perspective, but what a Mm. tremendous fucking feat of human engineering, and how incredible that these thousands of people are all in this place together, all heading off on their own journeys. It's, um, I don't know, it's a powerful collective that Reggio portrays, this, um, the extraordinary Mm. effect of time. And that's what he plays with most is time. And that's what he plays with in my favorite scene, which is very fast motion shots of traffic moving through a city at night. And it's just, it becomes just a river of light moving through Mm. the streets um, to this incredible fast paced soundtrack by Philip Glass, this electronic soundtrack. And it's, um, it then transitions into sort of um, fast forwarded consumerism. And I don't know, there's just something spectacular about it. And I feel, I feel like Philip Glass captures the moment more fully than, Reggio perhaps intended and as much as it's showing us and it's like wow it's beautiful and frightening great um back to 2011 for me uh, kill list one two three Abracadabra. which is the nice. first ben wheatley film i saw first one you yeah. saw yeah, definitely. Neil Maskell and Michael Smiley are hitmen in England, which is a horrible, dreary thought. Uh, their latest <laughs> job 
their latest job draws them into the occult. But like a field in England, Wheatley is loath to give you too much insight into what's going on. Uh, it requires a rewatch for sure to come to terms with some quite abstract stuff. Uh, this is probably one of his easier ones because there are hints and clues peppered throughout that they are brushing up against uh, cultists. <laughs> Whereas I think with a field in England and High Rise, for example, he just runs with it and hopes you'll catch up. Yeah. He doesn't hope that. He doesn't care. He just gives he gives <laughs> you the premise and then says, see you at the finish line. I don't think even he knows. If, if you make it. <laughs> it's dialogue driven for a lot of it as they go about their usual hitmen, hitmeny business. But the further the film progresses, in, you know, and the occult sort of takes over. That's when it becomes more abstract, and you're rely you're relying on symbolism and image imagery that you don't necessarily understand, but you have a yeah. good idea of what it might mean. The climax of the film is also the moment where it hits where it hits peak hits peak purity, um, <laughs> where our heroes seem to forego rationale and the cultist undertones become overtones. Yeah, it's really a punching your big stupid face. <laughs> yeah, very powerful. It, it definitely is. So nothing happened for about thirty years after um, Koanis Gatsi. Um, I've got to catch up with Paul. So, I mean, there's Bellatar, I guess, if you're keeping score. But um, I'm not. No, I'm moving forward because I want to focus on some modern examples in my list. And um, the first, I've got two from 2013, and uh, I'm not doing them in alphabetical order. Wow. I know. Uh, my first one is 2013's Upstream Color. When I wrote the following pages, or rather the bulk of them, I lived alone in the woods, a mile from any neighbor, in a house which I had built myself on the shore of Walden Pond. I lived there for two years and two months. At present, I'm a sojourner of civilized life again. By Prima Director Shane Karouf. Right, let's try a plot description. A thief is cultivating a strange parasite that he slips into people's drinks to make them very suggestible so that he can convince them to give him all of his money. All <laughs> of their money. Yeah. Two of the victims of this process are drawn together inexplicably and find that the after-effects of being inhabited by this organism are very bizarre and may well lend to them having a whole new perspective on life and the world around them. So it's a difficult Jesus film to Christ. follow if you're trying to. Yeah, <laughs> It's really better to just let it wash over you. By Caruso's own admission, it's not a film that's trying to offer answers to anything, but rather ask the right questions. Mm. Um, it's a film about the problem of cycles and how people get caught in them, um, which he explores beautifully through sort of repetition. Um, it's also most definitely about communication and what might be achieved were it to become effortless between people and how frightening that might actually be. Mm. Um, but what's important is the way that Karuf explores the idea for a catalogue of cinematic techniques that invokes Kubrick and Malick and uh, just everyone I've mentioned on the list so far. This, you know, Tarkovsky-esque shots in here. Mm. Um you know, there's there's a, a scene of a pig decomposing in a river, which is genuinely as thrilling as the Stargate sequence from 2001. <laughs> it's um, and that is the titular upstream color. Um, because uh, it's okay. about how the sort of parasite infected pig. But all good sentences about pure cinema start with parasite infected pig. <laughs> Get in the Lynch section. <laughs> he decomposes, and his weird energy kind of leaks into the flowers that are growing mm. upstream, downstream, I guess. Uh, his use of close-ups and drifting panning shots and spectacular cross-cutting all creates a very new, very natural form of understanding. Images from the film stay with you. Sequences will stir feelings in you that go beyond the desire to understand them and speak to a much deeper place that will that you will understand if you let it. Mm. Just stop thinking and try and feel it. And the best scene, there's a magic moment where the young couple are growing closer. It starts with them lying down together and him saying they should go on a trip, and then they notice some starlings. That's the kind of beginning of the sequence. It's cross-cutting with them moving from a new relationship, 
and the exuberance that that brings to bored familiarity and sort of rehashing Mm. the same conversations over and over again, all in just a few minutes. But what's tantalizing is that it's simultaneously happening and the driving force of the sequence is them realizing that they share a childhood memory now and they can't remember who it actually happened to Hmm. and that this is happening with other memories as well. So there's a growing panic and energy to the sequence as they become frustrated with each other and with their own limitation in their memories. It messes with your sense of memory as well because we keep getting the same moment but slightly differently. No. I told you that story. No, 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 you didn't. No. Yeah, he held me under. Remember, he held me underwater. So I'm not. And yet with so you, I'm not allowed, you have to be I'm not allowed like to this. talk about my childhood. Talk because just don't you, talk about my you think childhood. it's your childhood? About, what about the trampoline? With Mick? Nope, that's you. That's the, yours. That's me. Thank you for that. What about Reddy? No. Almost drowned me? No. And I my mom about it? No, that's mine. That that's happened to me. You. Right, okay. That happened to me? Chris. And not only that, but you're also trying to tell me that... that... And it's about their closeness becoming almost sinister. They're, they're losing track of themselves in each other. And it's, you know, relatable as that sort of thing that happens in a relationship. And it's, mm. it's charming and it's strange and it's beautiful, just like the rest of the film. Gosh, that really is a film I need to rewatch. Yeah, it's it's really deserves it. There's, there's this this one and another one that I will mention in passing later that I think I kept, we, we started watching it late. I'd had a beer <laughs> and uh, I think I think I maybe even dozed off. Um, was that about... the first Cosmatos? It was indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. We didn't to, finish tr- it in the end. Don't, I didn't remember whether you finished it or not, like begrudgingly. No. <laughs> well, I'll, just watch this ma- I'll just watch this masterpiece then. Fine. <laughs> Fine. It's great. <laughs> it's not even funny, but I'm laughing. <laughs> Loving at you, clown. <laughs> trash plank film plank (laughs) it just it just sounds so lyrical when you when you present it like that and man i shank ruth really is something special he really is all right into 2013 for me with only god forgives no wait only god forgives yeah Nicholas Winding Refn doesn't always give the audience much in the way of help. Sometimes he makes drive, and that ended up being the subject of a really great Every Frame of Painting episode for, for the use of quadrants, but usually he makes abstract films that rely on scene and setting and very subtle facial expressions from Mads Mikkelsen. I think Only, God's, I think Only God Forgives was a surprise to everyone who went expecting Drive 2. Um, Ryan Gosling is equally laconic but he's not the hero he's not even the anti-hero really he's just a glorified thug who's bullied by his Christian Scott Thomas mom into avenging the death of his piece of shit brother and <laughs> in, in, in my memory I have shots of him walking down neon lit alleyways that could well have gone yeah. nowhere at all and feeling like he made it out the other end by luck alone yeah. there's purposefully little connecting some of the scenes and connecting the narrative this is something else, something that comes up in Valhalla Rising as well mm. um good examples of the abstract overwhelming everything else but it's just like daniel neofitu says of lynch and i'm paraphrasing stop trying to figure it out here <laughs> you, you do well to sit back and let the viscera of the bright lights and pulsating bass wash over you yeah. as in thailand or something and that's great <laughs> there are two standout scenes for me one is the karaoke of, of the, oh, of the yeah. cop who is a who is a bloodied a bloody avenger <laughs> um yeah. ha- having this really 
surreal sort of scene where he lets go and and, and sings this very bizarre haunting track (laughs) but the fight between gosling and this this thai cop who's pursuing him is is a really unsettling thing to watch because it's it's through that fight that you realize a this isn't the film you thought it was going to be gosling isn't the hero you thought he was going to be and you're not safe at all in this film just as the fortunes shift in this fight god it was a good film (laughs) It was really great, and I'm, I'm, I was very. I think that film was somewhat betrayed by people's expectations of it, in the same way that Suspiria is being right now. Oh, um, boo! But everyone who, who saw Drive and was expecting another sort of slice of genre fiction with an art edge, and were mm. fine to find surprised to find an art film with a genre edge. Yeah, I think we're very disappointed. But it's it's just such an extraordinary piece of work that I feel like it's mm. really in need of a reevaluation. Yeah, that's why we're here. <laughs> Want to fight? Right, finishing off 2013, Under the Skin by Jonathan mm. Fraser. <laughs> An alien drives around Scotland looking for men she can lure back to her own personal void where they can be harvested for meat. If that sounds schlocky, it's far from it. Um... The film is most definitely a horror film, but more profoundly, it's a film about an alien intelligence trying to understand human life. It's like a spider just rooting around in your life trying to figure it out. It has that unsettling quality to it. In your brain life. In your brain life. Um, Glazer explores the idea through cinematic techniques that feel alien. It's like a stripped out method of communication. uh, The building blocks of understanding. And yet there's also a starkness to it, like an improvised mm. nature to the shots of her on the streets of um, Glasgow and other Scottish places, um, <laughs> captured with actual unsuspecting members of the Scottish public, the very worst kind of public. And <laughs> and it's just, it's very disturbing. The horrors of the film are very bluntly stated with mm. Mika Levy's awesome ethereal score that heightening every moment of tension. such a sublime soundtrack it's it's unreal it really is my favorite i think the most cinematic scene is a moment where the creature played by scarlett johansson is coming down the stairs and she noticed uh, it's just after she's harvested a particularly troubling victim i feel one that she may have actually been able to empathize with and she's coming down the stairs and she catches herself in the mirror Mm. and she just decides to sort of watch herself in it for a while and it's mm. nothing is said, but suddenly a profound understanding has come to her. And it's the moment that leads to her deciding to completely change everything, including the sort of traje- trajectory of the film. The, the scene on the beach in particular is just really mm. quite very provocative. 
I mean, the the void the void for me is the yeah is the winner there. It's <laughs> almost incomprehensible. I don't know how they managed to bring that to the screen. And it's it, like a I mean, really good Freddy kill. The best Freddy kill or second <laughs> best. Primetime bitch was great. Um, but I mean, that's an example of of the the, the robust nature of pure cinema because the yeah. novel by uh, Michael Faber oh, yeah. is, is is great. It's a really great sure. tight piece of fiction. But the film elevated it to something yeah. something that fantastic author Michael Faber's puny words couldn't do. <laughs> it's more like a more like a Cormac McCarthy style experience, I guess. He could just write, and then she wandered into the void and became nothing. My next one, twenty fifteen. We're catching up on your present. Is <laughs> the forbid- forbidden room. been through this one for sure it's uh, oh god to go to go to wikipedia on this one the film's frame story and the narrative it returns to the most concerns a submarine crew transporting a volatile substance that will explode if they ever resurface as the yeah. crew struggle to survive with low oxygen levels a woodsman mysteriously forces <laughs> his way into the vessel the crew believe his sudden appearance may lead to an escape from their predicament the men navigate a labyrinth of rooms and passageways while trying to access the captain's chamber along the way they recount stories that lead to other stories which unfold in the complex and laid manner of a the most important of these sub-stories shows the woodsman and his fellow sapling jacks trying to rescue a woman named Margot from depraved kidnappers. Sapling jacks. Yeah, I know. It just makes me so happy reading reading this through. <laughs> Other sub-stories involve a surgeon kidnapped by a team of women skeletons who work as insurance defrauders, a madman on a train under the charge of a womanizing psychiatrist, a yeah. moustache that seeks to comfort the widow of the man <laughs> whose face it used to adorn, and a doctor cursed by a bust of Janus. <laughs> lug lug. Um, lug, it, lug. It's just truly disorienting. It is a sto- it's a it's it's a storyless story, and as much as I'd like to say Sparks' final derriere is the, the is, yeah. uh, an example <laughs> of pure cinema, even though that bit contains Udo Kier, it doesn't it doesn't quite fit the bill. No, it's more like a music video. The it's, best you know, music video. It's a pure music video. <laughs> but what vignette? What vignette do you choose? You know. Yeah. Um, the whole thing is a masterclass in pure cinema. It's disorienting as it lurches up and down narrative levels. It leaves you laughing like a giddy duck, but yeah. all of it's pure cinema. I, I, I really, I really can't choose a moment. I would maybe, maybe the the the, the effect of the burning celluloid is probably mm. <laughs> as it morphs from one thing to another. Yeah, we've we've said this a few times already, guys. But mm. if you haven't seen it, make oh, make God. that your your film to watch in 2018. <laughs> It's running out of time. Journey. <laughs> Come on, guys. Do it now. Do it Christmas. Yeah. Now, I'm also in 2015. Caught you, motherfucker. What? I know. Ah, oh, I've, already, I've already left. <laughs> you, just, you can only smell my farts. <laughs> Stop leaving those behind for me. <laughs> now, that's enough of your Soviet poets and French time wasters. Let's have Australia's contribution to pure cinema. Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> bam, bam, bam. <laughs> Masterpiece of visual storytelling. Max is a lone survivor in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. He falls in with an attempt to rescue the wives of a tyrannical dictator. 
who will go to any lengths to reclaim them. Ensue Convoy Chase. It's a film that expertly and simply reveals its plot and character development through action. It's um, incredibly fast-paced, it's very entertaining, it's absolutely fucking gorgeous, but it's also brilliant in that wonderful way where you don't notice how brilliant it is, Mm. because it's effortless. The way it feeds you information and takes you on this journey is effortless. So you're not thinking about how inventive it's being in doing so. I'm going to say that my favourite moment... Oh, now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm thinking about the moment where they travel through the swamps at night. That's pretty gorgeous. Mm. But um, I am just going to go with the final confrontation when they decide to race back and sort of overtake the um, uh, the people pursuing them. And it's mm. just a truly amazing fight se- uh, action scene. Full of peril and uh, just wonderful character moments and the end of character arcs that come through action. It's It's beautiful. Yeah. What a film. Yeah. Okay, so getting up to my penultimate film now is 2017's Mother. Mother! Mother! Uh, it's another um, one we've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast. I think um, Darren Aronofsky relies heavily on visually. Darren Aronofsky relies heavily on visual storytelling, whether it's heroin use in Requiem for a Dream or dark mathematics of Pi. Uh, he uses it as a hammer. I think smashing its way through your skull, then just leaving it on your brain like a lazy tradie as he goes off to get thought crisps. Mother, uh, mother seems to be telling one story and then it's another. And even after Jennifer Lawrence spoiled my fucking fun by revealing what it was actually about, <laughs> my other interpretations persist. It's, it's yeah. broad but personal. That's the key with Aronofsky, I think. It's open to interpretation, but it's anything but vague. Mother actually benefits from fantastic dialogue. The scene with Donald Gleeson as Kane comes to mind. But <laughs> the, the film would work perfectly well without any dialogue at all. These scenes would play out and you would fully understand everything that's happening. Um, you'd you'd feel the the oppressiveness of everything that's happening to Jennifer Lawrence's character. That's what qualifies it for a uh, pure cinema mention. The most memorable pure cinema scene here is what can only be described as the revolution. It's ugly, violent, and overbearing when the the mourners of uh, Abel yeah. take just take over the house yeah. in in spite of her sort of polite pleas for them to to stop touching things and breaking things and soon it becomes anarchy as as the whole house crumbles and um some really horrible things happen to jennifer lawrence's character (laughs) it's genuinely unpleasant to watch and whether or not it's because aronofsky mixes such broad violent beats with something that is so personal that's happening to jennifer lawrence Mm. uh therefore us the audience this scene is a story told from beginning to end and nothing is needed beyond what you can see yeah definitely right my final film is from last year, and it's Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Ah, atonement. (laughs) That too, simultaneously. A group of soldiers want to get off a beach. Uh, whilst a small boat wants to be part of the rescue operation and an RAF pilot wants to protect the boat from the air. That's it for the plot, really. There are some machinations and subplots and something to do with a French sailor, but, you know. What matters is that the film is largely without dialogue as Nolan boils down the experience of warfare to a simple tale or to simple tales of survival, just staying alive. Mm. Um, Take, for instance, the moment where 
the two men wordlessly decide to pretend to be a stretcher bearers so that they yeah. can get onto a ship. It's all told with eyeline and glances and context. And so much of the film is told that way. Um, Zimmer's soundtrack drives the edits, which are always motivated by the action. And it never loses its coherence, even mm. as characters are transported around the beach and channel by the variable time frames. You know, mm. suddenly Cillian Murphy's on a boat instead of on the place we last saw him. Yeah. Um, but it makes sense because it just it, it instinctively carries you along. It's, it's a huge work and it's, it's a very human and a very cinematic one. Um, and it's very, it's very difficult to signify in Dunkirk where one scene ends and the next begins. It's um, kind of seamless, a bit like yeah. Ben Wheatley's new film, Happy New Year, Colin Bursted. It's one long scene that plays out in multiple locations, mm, multiple great. narratives. To narrow it down to a few moments, perhaps the opening, um, which in the IMAX screen always provoked a gasp from the audience when it would cut. It would hard cut from black to this full-size shot of these soldiers amidst a rain of uh, propaganda leaflets. Mm. And for about 10 minutes, the film plays out with no lines whatsoever. And I think the last word on it, I will leave to Guillermo del Toro, who said this. There's a moment in, in Chris's film that I would like to discuss because it, it exists purely in a cinematic way. In a cinematic way, at the end, when finally the plane is landing and there's fire. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's a poem. It's truly a poem, uh, almost like a eulogy at the end of the, of the battle. And then is when he removes his mask and you can see his face. It's the end. And it's, it's the first time you're going to really fully see him as a vulnerable human that is not fused with the machine. And it's pure poetry. And what you were saying, it's so hard to talk about film because you can never encompass it with words. Right. What makes it work lies beyond the words, beyond the, the, the story, the plot, or the characters. It's purely a moment when the light hits, when the camera moves, when something moves magically, and that's the ending of Dunkirk. <laughs> e, classic oh, stuff. Gemmo! Oh, not again. Welly! Again, get out! <laughs> get out. You provocative man. Paul, what's your last one? Oh, it's Mandy. Oh, okay. I changed my mind. What? I like Galactus. Galactus isn't a planet. Yeah, but he eats planets. <laughs> latest film from Panos Cosmatos. Uh, it's another film, like Mother, that doesn't need a single word of dialogue to tell its story, but for me, emphatically more so. Uh, we've spoken of Cage the Troubadour in uh, Vampire's Kiss, and for me, this film from Cosmatos is made just so that parts of it could fall away and we would understand everything that happened because every other constituent part is large, loud, colourful, and it's not going away. Yeah. Um, this Now, this does have the benefit of being fresh in my mind. You could... You could Get rid of the dialogue. Get rid of the music. Even you know when someone's being has been fed hallucinogens in an in attempt to awe them before a cult. Yeah. Uh, you know that darkness is called from the underworld by whom and for what reason. And you even know the moods of characters based on the camera work and the color palette. My first experience of Panos Cosmatos was Beyond the Black Rainbow, was alluded to earlier, which um, again put on several years ago. It was super trippy. And I think I had a beer, so I fell asleep. And when I realized that this was the same guy coming at my face with Mandy, I couldn't be more excited and nervous. Mm. This is a film that was written following the death of Cosmatos's parents. Um, he explores Jungian theories of the inner psyche and the revival of demons of ancient religions. 
and and I knew that this was going to be a total assault on the senses because there's a lot and there's a lot of emotion being channeled through this film but it will last longer with me because it hits deeper more consistently than dialogue alone can do pure cinema either the hallucinogen trip um where Linus Roach the the cult leader uh he's playing Jeremiah Sands is trying to sort of ingratiate her to accept him as 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 her as her god in this world yeah. and uh he's he's standing naked before her spouting mythology and, and very grandiose statements at her whilst their faces just bleed into the, the surrounding objects um such as the sheer madness of this of the camera work yeah or and i think i'm leaning towards this one is the final confrontation between between cage and linus roach both of whom are amazing in this um the gamut of personalities and psyches actually that roach reels through mm. in the short space of time then that cage is gripping his face it's kind of frightening yeah he 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 goes he goes from scared to to fury itself and mm. desperation and this is told through the camera and through through the colors in the film Di- dialogue isn't needed it's mm. it's just pure blood and guts and i felt it head to toe yeah deep deep as my soul which doesn't exist <laughs> absolutely that is it's a really cinematic film and i think that gives a pretty good impression of pure cinema across time um Mm. so we need to sum up in some way film is my favorite method that human beings have found for expressing themselves Mm. it's everything to me it's literature and music and poetry and sculpture and performance and design and at its best it's every disciple we have mastered through our existence and is immortal and yet also ever-changing and purer than anything else and i hope that we've offered some form of insight in our selection of pure films and in our discussion of cinematic techniques as to why that should be the case. I, th- I think we have, as as we mentioned at the very beginning of this, whether we've cut it out or not, uh, we'll <laughs> I'll, f- I'll find out, but it is hard to describe something that is abstract a lot of the time yeah. and um, something that, for me anyway, hits such abstract notes mm. within me. But to a large extent, I think the films speak for themselves. Yeah, um, it's just like fluid meaning. Mm. And nice. it is dreams, you know, it's the best way in which we can put our dreams and articulate them to each other. And, you know, mm. like all art, it is a method of communication. And I just think it's one of the most powerful. Yeah. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to One Good Thing. Yeah, thanks very much. If you want to contact us, you can do so on Facebook and Twitter, uh, forward slash OGTpod. Uh, send us an email at Gmail, OGTpod at gmail.com. We are available if you haven't subscribed yet. And if you haven't, what are you doing with your lives? If Unless the answer is watching all of these movies, then okay, fine. But... Fine. If not, then not fine. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, YouTube, one of them. Go on, pull Screen Mayhem. You're on it. Screen Mayhem, yes. Find more examples of great film at Screen Mayhem. Mm. Where I'll be reviewing things like Fantastic Beasts 2. Wow. Where will you find them? (laughs) I know. I have an idea. (laughs) It's going to be in the Big Book of Monsters. Oh, you don't know that. You don't know that. Uh, could be misleading. <laughs> could be a really angsty tale of alienation in modern London. But with which probably that. Probably. So yeah, go find out. A screen mayhem. I'm Paul Salt. I'm Paul Goodman. Remember, one good thing about film is that sometimes Nicolas Cage is there, or Tarkovsky. In either case, you know, for something special. Interchangeable. <laughs>